Hello and welcome to This Is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and I'm joined today by Peter Von Shaver. That's correct. Yep. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah, Peter, um, you are a, an arts and entertainment lawyer. Yeah, I have a company here in Portland called Sound Advice LLC, and I do mostly music law, but arts and entertainment is kind of the general category for working with creative people of all stripes. And how did you get into that? You know, it was just kind of... Um, following my passions in a certain way. And some of it was genetic. My dad was an attorney. My mom was kind of a creative person, very into music. And uh, when I was in law school, I really wanted to do like copyright law, working Mm -hmm. with visual artists and other things. And I got a job at a firm and they were kind of like, well, if you want to develop this whole music area thing, knock yourself out. And since I spend most of my spare time hanging out in bars, drinking and listening to bands anyway, I was like, great, I can combine my passion with working on something I'm interested in. So... I do about 80% music law now, so okay. yeah. Cool. Are, are you a musician yourself? No, I used to be, but then working in this business, you, you meet somebody who can really play guitar or uh, yeah, really has yeah. talent, and you're like, I'll leave it to the experts and be an enabler on the back end, like sure. help them with the business and legal side and let them do the creative stuff and not sweat the ugly parts of the music business. So. Right. So uh, do you tend to work with the artists themselves? Do you work with uh, music companies? Are you on both sides of that? Yeah, really both sides of the coin. I mean, I set up a lot of labels and then artists, uh, I, connecting with folks at the early start of their careers so that they're aware of the issues and they can take uh, some simple steps like copywriting their own stuff or trademark their band name that you don't think about, but especially with music publishing, there's so much money there that people give up willy-nilly just because they act without thinking or they don't want to betray their own naivete about these things, so they just sign things without thinking or reading it. And it's nice when I can kind of get involved with those situations to really spare them those headaches. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a blast, though, just when things do work out and people don't get screwed. Do you think being a music lawyer, does that affect how you listen to music? I'll say this. I work with people in so many genres that the definition of good music, you just have to get into that genre. You know, I don't work with a lot of new country artists, but I'm sure I would find something like, wow, dude, that mandolin solo on that thing was killer. Even though I'm like, I can't stand the genre, but yeah. I will find the good in it. And I do actively listen to everything. I work with artists from Zimbabwe. I work with artists really of every stripe you can imagine. And even stuff that's not in my wheelhouse or comfort zone where like I have to put my own prejudices aside and just go, what is the good about this? Mm-hmm. What's good vaporware music? What's good trance music? The filter for me is just... Is there a sincere creative impulse and is it something that I can find something to like about it? Sure. I always do. I always do. Right. Do you want to talk about, uh, just jump into the music? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. let's do it. Cool. So uh, we're looking at July 1990 and at the beginning of the month, for the first week, the number one spot is still held by World Parties Way Down Now. Mm -hmm. We heard that last episode. And in the second week, we have a new number one and it is Concrete Blonde. They were formed in Los Angeles in 1982 by Jeanette Napolitano and James Mankey. And they were originally called Dream Six, and then they changed their name to The Dreamers. And then they changed their name to Concrete Blonde in 1986 after they signed to IRS. And that was at a suggestion from R.E.M.'s Michael Stipe, which I think is kind of funny because the story about R.E.M.'s own name, I've heard a few different stories, but the, the most popular one seems to be that they just opened a dictionary and pointed... And REM it was. 
So I don't know, not great at choosing their own name maybe, but good at choosing names for others. All the good band names are taken anyway. Yeah, so yeah. you're kind of at a loss. But Sure. You know, 1990, the year we're talking about right now, is a, a big year for Concrete Blonde. They land a song on the Pump Up the Volume original soundtrack. That was a Christian Slater movie, uh, yeah. if you remember that one. And actually, um, it was a cover of Everybody Knows by Leonard Cohen. Ah, sure. In addition to that, Jeanette Napolitano, she did a duet with former Wall of Voodoo lead singer Andy Preboy called Tomorrow Wendy, and that's about a woman dying of AIDS. And then, of course, they also released their album Bloodletting in 1990, and this was their biggest selling album, largely because of the song we're going to hear today, which is called Joey. Joey was written by Napolitano about being in love with an alcoholic, and specifically it was about Wall of Voodoo guitarist Mark Moreland, whom she had met when Concrete Blonde opened for Wall of Voodoo in Australia on an early tour of theirs. And Moreland and Napolitano went on to form a side project called Pretty and Twisted. They released an album in 1995, and Moreland died in 2002 at the age of 44, from kidney failure following a liver transplant. So, sad story tied in with a song. Hmm. So, we're going to hear Joey. It topped the modern rock charts for four consecutive weeks. It was the only Concrete Blonde song to ever hit the Hot 100, where it reached number 19. And let's just go ahead and listen to it. Here we go. Joey. A great song. Yeah. It's just one of those classics of that that era, I think. It's one of those songs, too, I wish I could do at karaoke. I don't do a lot of karaoke, but it's like, man, if I had could do that. And it's kind of misleading because she starts off with this very kind of uh, conspiratorial. You know, it's a quiet. She just leads you in with a, mm-hmm. that low register that stuff and then zooms up into that almost operatic or, or kind of show tune like belting it out and it's the range there is so huge right i could never do it and i would hate to see somebody butcher it at karaoke because it's like one of those songs like no don't do that or aretha franklin if you can't pull that shit off like sure. no don't do it yeah yeah um i like this song too it's it seems very rooted in um girl group drum sounds mm-hmm. there i mean i definitely heard dun 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 it's like mm-hmm. uh, leader of the pack yeah, or that kind, uh, that kind of Shangri-La stuff. Sure, and the chord progression is very much uh, in that vein as well. Hmm. But stylistically, uh, it doesn't sound like that really. It sounds darker. It sounds... It's mall goth. Mm-hmm. Ma- I, I, okay. I think that album alone spawned an entire generation of hot topic mall goths. Yeah. Um, and really, I'll say this about that whole album. It has a certain feel and a certain kind of dark romanticism to the whole thing that that really sticks together and um i had that album i still have it i think i have it on cassette but i still listen to it pretty regularly and it's each side has these pop gems of that era caroline which is another Mm -hmm. very similar song and and then joey which is just was their big hit obviously but the whole thing has that kind of dark thematic 
pseudo goth kind of feel to it. I guess the other thing is when this song starts, I think maybe people might assume it's just a straight up love song, uh, you know, Joey baby kind of thing. Uh, it gets a little dark. It gets real dark real quick. And I think that there's that whole kind of keening sense of, of loss and trying to save somebody that can't save themselves. And you're on the verge of giving up about it. I mean, I, there's people I've known, family members and others, where you're just like, I've done everything I can. If you want to destroy the rest of your life, I'm not going to be able to stop you, but I still want to if I could. And you that throwing that little lifeline out there. Uh, and there's just that real palpable sense of loss. It's, it's a very emotive vocal. And I think that drawing you in with that, that really low kind of almost mm-hmm. sotto voce, you know, thing, and then just to slam you with the big emotion thing. It's, it's a really well-written, very cool song. Right. And I actually read some quotes from Jeanette Napolitano talking about how people had called her a sellout or called their band a sellout after Joey became a big hit. And she thought that was ridiculous. And I think rightfully so. Well, she had problems with the, her label too, because labels of that era you did multi-year multi-album deals and the first two frankly didn't do all that well and i think they were a little bit on her to say we need something that's a little more that the kids are going to dig or whatever Mm -hmm. and she was like that's not my thing right and 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 then after the success there was a great quote i read where she just said if i could have consciously written a top 40 hit don't you think i would have done that on my first record just and, and even if you look at the circumstances under which the lyrics were written it was the last thing they did for this album they didn't even have lyrics for it it was the last thing they did on it they had the music and everybody was like wow this is super compelling and then the final day of tracking in england she came up with the lyrics like in the taxi on the way to the session or something yeah one thing that's interesting to me about concrete blonde is they seem to kind of exist between genres in this way that i think was maybe detrimental to their career i mean maybe not but they don't quite fit into college rock and they don't quite fit into that grunge stuff that was coming later. If you listen to the rest of Bloodletting, there's some very quiet ballads there and then there's some real up-tempo heavy rockers on there. So I think it's that kind of whiplash with the consumer where where do you, what box do you put them in? And frankly, in my own mind, I think I associated them less as a alternative or modern rock band, as but more of a pop just hearing those songs on the big radio mm-hmm. stations. I mean, the only place you really hear that song now is on the classic hits radio station. Mm-hmm. So every once in a while they'll play either Joey or Caroline. And so, yeah, maybe there was that kind of genre whiplash or that inconvenience of trying to find a, you know, the right thing for them. But I think that they didn't stay together initially much longer after this, even though they reformed it apparently a couple times. So that chart success for this song and this record really didn't translate into much else beyond that. I think there were a couple other hits, uh, but I, I don't know them. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Let's, uh, let's move on. Joey held the top spot for the entire rest of July, 1990. So the other songs we're going to hear are going to be below that point. We're going to hear a song that reached number two and it is by an artist named Adrian Ballou, and it's featuring David Bowie. And this guy's got a lot of backstory. 
Are, you're familiar with Adrian Ballou. Oh, yeah. I'm more familiar with his Kim, King Crimson stuff. And he, he did a lot of solo projects. And then I, I he would pop up on a lot of Talking Heads records here and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talked to my wife about him. And she's like, I know that guy's name. He's from Nine Inch Nails, right? And I, I said, is that true? I don't know. Let me look it up. Oh, in fact, yes. He, he collaborated wow. with Trent Reznor starting on the Downward Spiral. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So... There's a lot of story. Like I said, I'm going to try to sum up, <laughs> sum it up as best as I can. He developed a guitar style that is very unique, and that's really what he was going for. He was trying to sound like nobody else, and he, his style is sometimes described as sounding like sound effects, making animal noises with his guitar, making mechanical type sounds with his guitar. And he was, I think, 27 years old, working in a cover band, and kind of thinking that he had reached an age where he was not going to be able to do music professionally and and he had gone too long and hadn't had his break and he gets spotted by Frank Zappa and Frank Zappa is impressed and eventually offers him a job in his band touring and he also appears on uh, Frank Zappa's biggest selling album Chic Your Booty Hmm. and David Bowie catches a performance uh, while he's playing with Frank Zappa and he poaches him out of Zappa's band and Adrian Ballou ends up working on Bowie's Lodger album. And in fact, and this is crazy to me, if, if you know the song, the, the David Bowie song, Boys Keep Swinging, David Bowie said that was actually written about Adrian Ballou, or at least about his youthful, naive spirit in some way. Hmm. So works for David Bowie, works for Talking Heads, like you said, shows up on some of their albums. He worked with all of the members of Talking Heads on their side projects. So Jerry Harrison's debut album and uh, Tina Weymouth and Chris France were working on Tom Tom Club. He worked on that with them. And Tina and Chris actually, in secret, approached Adrian Ballou at some point. They were having some uh, Talking Heads interband conflicts, and they approached Adrian Ballou about possibly replacing David Byrne as the lead singer of the Talking Heads. Wow. Yeah. That would have been a totally different story there. That would have been something. Hmm. But Adrian turned them down, and probably in large part because he'd been offered the job as the singer and second guitarist for uh, legendary prog rock band King Crimson. And he held that position from 1981 until 2013, I believe. So that's quite something. In the meantime, he's also working with, like I said, Nine Inch Nails. He's working with Joe Cocker, and he's working with... William Shatner and uh, <laughs> Herbie Hancock, Cindy Lauper, Mike Oldfield, Paul Simon. I mean, just all over the place. So that's pretty amazing. And when we get to just about 1990, he gets a call from David Bowie and he hadn't worked with him in a while. And David Bowie says, Hey, I'm putting together this kind of greatest hits package for CD release. I'm going to go on a tour, do a greatest hits tour kind of thing. Uh, do you want to join me on the tour? And Adrian Ballou says, well, I'm kind of busy. I'm, I'm getting my second solo album ready to go. And uh, David Bowie says, I'll sweeten the deal. I will give you uh, one of my songs that I wrote. Uh, we can record it as a duet. You put it on your album. That'll hopefully boost your sales. And then we can perform it together on the tour. And he says, that sounds amazing. Let's do it. And so uh, tape shows up in the mail from David Bowie. Uh, Adrian Ballou excitedly opens it, puts it on, and it is a terrible song. It's, <laughs> he, he's very disappointed. He says, this is not good. It's, it's, it's David Bowie. It's a demo, something that was not good enough for his Tin Machine side project. 
and features music by Brian Adams band, hmm. his backing band. And Adrian Ballou says, well, this is awful, but this is really, this is a big shot for me. Let's do the best I can with this. He takes the song apart. He re-records everything, comes up with a whole new rhythm section, adds guitars, adds some hooks, changes it all up, sends it back to Bowie. And Bowie is astounded. He says, wow, you took what was kind of a terrible song and you've made it into a potential hit. So Bowie in kind, he responds by writing some really good lyrics for it, I think, giving a really good vocal performance. And it becomes a, a number two modern rock hit for Adrian Ballou and David Bowie. And the song is called Pretty Pink Rose. Pink Rose. There it is. Was that modern rock? Yeah, I'd say modern rock because again, like that for pop ears would sound really weird. And I I think that given where his rep, you know, where he was coming from, the the association with a lot of the, especially the more kind of out there bands, if you will, Bowie was totally mainstream at that point. But uh, from the Adrian Ballou side, and especially, boy, that little intro, it totally sounded like a kind of Brian Eno, Robert mm-hmm. Fripp mm-hmm. thing. And then, you know, even uh, I, I couldn't tell who was playing bass on it. It almost sounded like uh, Tony Levin, but there was some that kind of the King Crimson of that era wasn't never wasn't poppy. So it kind of some of those sounds I think would fit under modern rock. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I guess Bowie in some sense is always going to be modern rock, you know, in the, in the same way that you two continues to show up on the modern rock charts, even after they've become massive global superstars. I think it's that that kind of genre thing where just people, they're just going to peg you with something like that. If you came from that mm-hmm. that alternative thing, it's maybe just an unfortunate kind of thing that's going to hang around your neck, uh, albatross, or <laughs> the rest of your career. Yeah. So, yeah, what'd you think? This was the first time you've heard this song. Yeah, and you know, I'm really surprised because I listen to a lot of music, but that one just... It just never appeared on my radar, uh, and I and they always called uh, Baloo the Twang Bar King, and a lot of those kind of really cool swoopy things. He's just really hitting that thing all the time, and you know, doing some stuff. So it's really I like the song. I think part of it was I kind of had lost interest in Bowie around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked his kind of Berlin things or the more stuff that was almost kind of undergroundy, mm-hmm. and then he he just got it to this schlocky phase so it almost sounds like the kind of start of that to me sure i mean i don't think this song by any means holds up against bowie's best work but it's it's good for later bowie it's the same kind of thing with tin machine i mean i think there was that never big acceptance of that you know even with the record companies probably giving djs a lot of coke at the time to kind of play it it just never really caught on with people or it just was too different a shift from the stuff that made him popular. One thing I notice about this is it sounds like it's going to sound really outdated very soon after, if that makes any sense. Like, this is coming out in 1990, and whatever sound this song is, I can tell, like, a year, two years later, like, no one's no one listening to modern rock is going to be wanting to hear a song like this. It, it sometimes happens. There's a lot of 80s stuff with, like, 
bad uh, synthetic drums that I, I'm just like, oh man, the cringy. I think I, there was like that Phil Collins record where people started putting a ton of compression on drums from a technical standpoint. And then yeah. everything for five years after that sounded, that had that same sound. Like, yeah. so, yeah. Were you impressed by the guitar? I love his guitar playing. Yeah. And, and I, it's interesting. I don't know if he ever had any other chart hits through any of his solo stuff even though there's a lot of high profile stuff that you hear him on that he played was this the highest thing that he ever charted with would be interesting it, it was the highest thing he charted with he had another minor modern rock hit the previous year called oh daddy there was a duet with his 11 year old daughter oh wow huh. yeah i read and I, i'm not totally sure i'm understanding this right but i read that on this song Adrian Blue was trying to come up with some cool guitar stuff to do, and he's he's got his tremolo bar, and he essentially used the tip of that bar to do tapping on his strings, like two-hand tapping technique, but with his tremolo bar, and he said he thought the sound that he got out of it was really cool, and he never used it before, and he, I don't think he ever used that technique since. It's a lot of bending if you've ever tried to do that. Yeah. It's a lot of, yeah. uh, wow. So I think we were hearing that in there somewhere. I'm not sure what part of the song that was. Huh. I feel like at this point in modern rock, it's still acceptable for artists who are in their 40s, mid-40s, maybe even late 40s. How, how old do you think Bowie was at this point? I'm not sure, but I mean... Bowie's whole chameleon thing was like it was different every time out of the box, really. So I don't know. Yeah, but Adrian Ballou, I think he's in his mid forties at this point. Yeah, could have and been. And still, still hitting the charts. And I don't see that happening once we get further into the nineties. It seemed like most of the artists were were newer bands, just kind of starting out, first album, second album, kind of thing mm-hmm. like that. Well, but I think for a journeyman player like that, if it's just, I think the uniqueness was just his sound. Nobody, and again, not a a super poppy flavor to it it was pretty out there for a lot of people just and it's kind of a precursor to a lot of those guitar wankers like joe satriani and some of those people who came along later as just the kind of guitar geek people mm-hmm. i was like those shows because the first 15 rows are just you know a bunch of guitar player dudes like who want to see the technique yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh okay well there was one more song that reached number two on the modern rock charts this month and it was by a band called hot house flowers this is an Irish band that formed in 1985, and they started out busking on the streets of Dublin, where apparently they won a street entertainer award. I wasn't aware that those were things, but I guess good for them. It brought them some kind of recognition. And Bono from U2 saw them performing in 1986, and he agreed to release their first single on his record label. That was enough to get them signed. And their first album released in 1988 It became the most successful debut album in Irish history, Mm. reaching number one on the Irish album charts and number two in the UK. So at this point, 1990, Hot House Flowers are releasing their second album called Home, and it is less successful, although it was a number one hit in Australia for some reason. And the first single and biggest hit from the album is called Give It Up. It reached number two on the modern rock charts. Do you have anything to say about Hot House Flowers? I know I've heard the name. I've probably heard this song, but again, just buried in the sands of time. Yeah, I listened to it a few times. I can't remember what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so let's listen to it. Here we go. Give It Up by Hot House Flowers. It's late in the morning, close to the time. When Mary's in the alley, she never stops smiling. Always love to see her. She means a lot to me, but I know she's got a hard time. And I'll make it be. 
Okay. Give it up. Yeah. Initial thoughts? I can hear the pitch to the label. Someone saying, the Irish Springsteen. Yeah. That's the first thing I thought. As soon as he started going into the singing, I was like, wow, this guy loves Springsteen. Well, this is that earnest thematic thing. And I think the sax and the, the piano, it's just kind of like people didn't like to take chances sometimes with bands. And it's like, oh, this is kind of a pre-sold sound that Americans will respond to or whatever. And, you know, to be honest, the musicianship was great. And after 15 pints of Guinness down the pub, I could see everybody singing along with that one. But also, you know, it's... The Irish Springsteen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt very much the same way. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. This this catchy enough. I, you know, I'm, I'm getting into it. Sure. I can see that. And Irish Springsteen. It, it has the same kind of quality as like, if you remember The Alarm, there were a bunch of these kind of more like big anthemic bands at a certain time. I think there was a, a, a certain fashion for that, maybe late 80s, early 90s that was carrying over. So uh, they were perhaps trying to capitalize on that. And it may explain the chart success or something like that. But. Sure. Uh, I did want to add one more Hot House Flower fun fact. In 1992, the band teamed up with Def Leppard. They formed, I guess, a super group. I don't know. But they went by the name The Acoustic Hippies from Hell and recorded three B-sides for some Def Leppard singles. Wow. Yeah. It's a good factoid. Yeah. So if, you, <laughs> if you're a Def Leppard fan uh, or a Hot House Flowers fan, I guess, go check that out. Wow. Trippy. Yeah. Okay, let's go to our fourth and final song. We're going down to number eight on the charts for this one, and we're going to be talking about an Australian band called Boom Crash Opera. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this band is because I wanted to spotlight something that's been happening on the modern rock charts, and that's that there's been a lot of Australian bands, probably more than at any other time I can think of. They they seem to be popping up all over the place. We've been hearing songs by In Excess and The Church and Midnight Oil, Hoodoo Gurus, uh, the Divinals are popping up on the charts, and Paul Kelly and the Messengers. Considering the population of Australia and considering how far away it is, it's a lot of bands. It's a lot of bands popping up. Again, it could be a fashion trend as well, but you know, those were all really super solid bands. So Split Ends, were, were they from New Zealand? Or I think so, yeah. Uh, but I, I just think it's kind of like what happened with Seattle a little later on. It's mm-hmm. like there was a sound or there was a, a mystique or some kind of uh, thing that people really responded to and, and really a, a kind of radically different uh, view. Even though all those bands were fairly different, they were all putting out really good material at that time. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have a a bit of a pub rock feel to them, at least on some level I've noticed. So I, I'm assuming there was a, a real pub circuit down there. That's where they came from. I feel like ACDC as that kind of like that primordial ooze that came out of that kind of pub scene down there. Um, But it's a pretty, I have some clients from Australia. It's a pretty well-developed thing. And there's a lot of government subsidies for things too. So for recording and they have a a bunch of huge festivals too that go on down there. So it's, I'm sure that was part of that whole spawning ground for some of those bands. Yeah. All right, so this is a band, Australian band. They formed in 1985. They were immediately successful in Australia. They charted with their their very first single, and they also charted with their next 14 singles as well in Australia. But this band had a hard time reaching other countries, uh, becoming successful outside of their homeland. So they only managed to land one song on the charts in America, and that was the one we're going to hear. It's from their second album, which is called These Here Are Crazy Times. And the song is called Onion Skin. Hey, keep it in, cut it out, kick 
banging. Yeah. You know, at that intro sounded like kind of a little leftover uh, Adam and the Ants, Bow Wow Wow kind of African drumming. And then uh, it was a, a cracking tune. Yeah, it was, it was pretty high energy. Uh, I felt like there was some in excess influence going on there. Definitely. And then that just classic, very busy, almost overproduced thing with the synthetic sounding horns of the era, uh-huh. uh, you know, just, yeah, it was, pretty, it was a dense track, but there's a lot, it was pretty good. Yeah. I read that when they dropped this off with their American distributors, they were not happy. They said, we can't release a song called onion skin guys. That's not going to work. Really? And then after it was a uh, number eight, modern rock hit, they said, we need some more songs like onion skin. <laughs> Ain't that the way it always works. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite things about the song, I looked it up on Wikipedia, and they actually did have a page just for this song. It's pretty sparse. And the entire description of this song was, in the song, the singer tells how he has many layers of skin, like an onion. This is meant in a metaphorical manner. And that's it. That's that's the page. (laughs) Someone probably in an Australian prison with a little time on their hand, access to the computer. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I'll I'll say this about my own music consumption habits. I don't really listen to lyrics that much. If, mm-hmm. So it's kind of if the music is good and it's kind of, uh, I mean, I don't care if you can dance to it or not. You could dance to that one, but uh, yeah, it wasn't wasn't a bad track. Yeah, and, I mean, I thought it was catchy. It was I thought it was fun. I can see why it had some kind of hit potential there and helped them reach an American audience. To definitely some extent. the best boom crash opera song I've ever heard. I'll give it that much. <laughs> definitely, yeah. Yeah. And you know, they, they had a pretty pretty good look, too. I think they've got a fairly attractive lead singer. I think that there's some appeal there. I think that was also just trailing. I don't know if NXS charted before or after this, but I think there was that Michael Hutchins, let's kind of trade on this. And I remember seeing NXS in the early, well, early 80s, probably 83, 84. And they're a very dynamic band. And I think this they kind of follow in that mode. Yeah. Okay. Well, we heard four songs. I don't know. Did you have any thoughts after listening to... All of these tracks. And- no, but it's just great to kind of excavate the past and stuff that it all bears looking at these little historic snapshots of what was going on at that time, both in terms of what the the predecessor things that were popular and then what came after that. So it's, I think, intriguing to kind of look at that. And uh, and I can listen to Joey a million times. So that's, uh, that, that's easy. Yeah. All right. You know, one thing I was going to ask you earlier on this podcast, what I've done based on my limited research is I play a 30-second clip of the song. And from what I understand, fair use laws are maybe a little open to interpretation. But generally speaking, that seems to be acceptable. If you're reviewing some music, you can play up to maybe 30 seconds or so. There's no set amount. Generally, the less you use, the better. Mm-hmm. But it's also for the purposes of criticism, commentary, or really scholarship if we're going back and excavating the past here, right. uh, where it's not kind of active reviews, but more kind of retroactive things. There's certainly a lot of license to do that, especially the laws regarding podcasting. Uh, every once in a while, I'll go to some uh, presentation by some noted music lawyer, and I'll be the prick in the audience who says, yeah, how do you how do you monetize money for podcasts? And they give you some incredibly evasive answer. And the bottom line is it's the laws really aren't settled for podcasting because it's, and I'll say this, start making a lot of money off it. And then you'll, then you'll hear from somebody saying you need to have a, you know, a license for something. But a lot of this stuff I'll say flies under the radar. And even though it is something that by its nature can be 
you have to do it on demand. It's not just like streaming podcasts. Someone has to go and and actively click and listen to the right. uh, the programming. But I think from a fair use standpoint, um, the less you use is always better. And then just in the context is really the main thing, especially if it's kind of a non-commercial context mm-hmm. or if you really are putting out there with a sincere framework of scholarship research or or commentary, which I think it fits very conveniently under all of those. Okay. So. Yeah. And my other question was, so the copyright applies to the actual recording is that right? Well, there's two copyrights with music. There's the underlying composition, if you can imagine the sheet music, okay. and then the sound recording of that composition. So, you know, whatever physical product form you're putting that in. So when we talk about copyrights, it's always which one of those is at issue. Okay. Uh, and generally when you license things for TV or film or video games, you have to do two separate licenses, one with the owner of the sound recording, usually a label, and then one with a publishing company or the artist or songwriters for that. So it's really the only kind of thing in the arts where there's that bifurcated thing that you have to really keep in mind. Okay, well, cool. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure. This is a treat. I suppose if there's any listeners out there that uh, need some representation in the in the music or arts field. Sure. Give me a call. Give me a, a quick thing. You can find Sound Advice LLC online. Uh, my website is pdxsa.com, and I'm always happy to just entertain uh, quick questions from the general public on music and art-related issues. Okay, great. And if anyone wants to get in contact with me, they can reach me through email at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye.